of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs, sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel, serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points to your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Years ago, I took a little day trip with some friends to a place called The Book Barn in Niantic, Connecticut. And one of the things I came home with was a book called Morning Dove, a Salishan autobiography. And that book has been sitting on my desk as a potential episode inspiration since then. If not directly on the desk, like adjacent to the desk, it has been next to me. And according to the receipt still stuck in that book, that trip happened in 2016. So that gives an indication of how long it can take to go from like a potential podcast idea to a podcast episode. Morning Dove was an activist, an ethnographer, and a novelist, and one of the first, if not the first, indigenous women in the United States to publish a novel. She was known by a lot of names. One was Christine Quintasket, and at various points, she also signed letters as Crystal, Christina, and Catherine. She was married twice, and during those marriages, she also used each of her husband's surnames. As an adult, she usually used the last name Quintasket at home among the confederated tribes of the Colville Reservation, but she usually used one of her husband's surnames with outsiders, whichever marriage was in existence at that point. She wrote under the name Morning Dove, which was sometimes printed along with the name Humishuma, which is sort of an approximated English spelling of the insulation word for morning dove. That is the Salish language that she grew up speaking. 
And then she was also given other names in that language at different points in her life. And these were really names that she used within her community and not with the wider public. And really, there's not one right name for her. She was raised in a culture in which people have and use different names in different contexts and for different times in their lives. We will mostly call her Christine Quintasket or Morning Dove, since that's what was on her published work. Christine Quintasket gave the year of her birth as 1888, although there are other years from the mid to late 1880s noted as various government and school records. She was the oldest of seven children, born to Joseph Quintasket, who was Okanagan, and Lucy Stukin, who was Colville. These are two of the 12 bands that are part of the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation, which is federally recognized as one tribe today. The name comes from Fort Colville, which was named after Hudson's Bay Company Governor Andrew Colville, and members of the tribe voted to keep this name in 2018. Although 12 bands compose the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation today, historically there were more than 50 living in this part of North America. The area includes land that's now described as Canada's Interior Plateau and the Columbia Plateau in the United States. These people spoke a number of different languages and dialects, most of them in the Interior Salish language group. And while many of these are still living languages and are spoken and taught today, the entire Salish language group is considered to be critically endangered. As we just said, this plateau is in both the U.S. and Canada, so the establishment of these two nations created an international border through this ancestral homeland. Unlike many of the other reservations that we've talked about on the show before, the Colville Reservation on the U.S. side of the border was not established through a treaty between these indigenous peoples and the United States. It was established by an executive order by President Ulysses S. Grant on April 9, 1872. F.A. Walker, Commissioner of Indian Affairs, had written a letter the day before outlining the need for a reservation for eight named tribes as well as, quote, scattering bands who were not party to a treaty with the United States. Acting Secretary of the Interior, B.R. Cohen, forwarded this to Grant, and the executive order simply read, quote, It is hereby ordered that the tract of country referred to in the within letter of the Acting Secretary of the Interior and designated upon the accompanying map be set apart for the bands of Indians in Washington Territory named in communication of the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, dated the 8th instant, and for other such Indians as the Department of the Interior may see fit to locate thereon. But less than two months later, on July 2nd, Grant issued another order, restoring that land to the public domain and designating different land for the reservation instead. This new piece of land was described as, quote, the country bounded on the east and south by the Columbia River, on the west by the Okanagan River, and on the north by the British possessions. The British possessions, of course, being Canada. This new reservation was a lot smaller than the previous one had been. It was about 2.8 million acres of land. And for comparison, these tribes' territories had historically covered about 39 million acres of land. And then from there, the reservation got progressively smaller. In 1887, Congress passed the Dawes Act, also known as the General Allotment Act, 
Previously, reservation land had been held by tribes collectively, and there are some nuances about who was legally considered to be holding the land, but the overall idea was that it belonged to the tribe as a group. The Dawes Act allowed for that land to instead be divided up and allotted to individual members of the tribe. This was ostensibly to protect indigenous people's land rights, but in practice it did the opposite. People who were allotted land were expected to assimilate with white culture and to do things with it like farm it using European methods. But in many cases, the land itself really wasn't conducive to being used in this way. And even if it was, people were expected to give up their traditional culture and practices in order to receive it. The law also called for supposedly extra land that was not allotted to anyone to be sold to non-Indigenous people. And a lot of the Indigenous people who were allotted land wound up losing it for all kinds of reasons. This was devastating and destructive to Indigenous peoples and their communities. Starting in the 1880s, mining companies also started trying to get access to the mineral-rich northern part of the Colville Reservation. A federal delegation was dispatched to the reservation to negotiate an agreement with the tribes, and that was signed on May 9, 1891. The tribes agreed to cede roughly 1.5 million acres of land to the federal government in exchange for $1.5 million. The tribes also successfully negotiated to keep the right to hunt, fish, and gather on the land that was being ceded. However, While Congress passed an act removing everything from Township 34 north to the Canadian border from the reservation in 1892, Congress did not start passing legislation to actually pay the $1.5 million until 1907. And then that 1907 legislation did not appropriate the entire amount. Congress appropriated $300,000 a year for five years until 1911. Indigenous people also faced hostility and legal action for hunting and fishing on what had been the North Half, in spite of having retained those rights in the negotiations. This led to the U.S. Supreme Court case Antoine v. Washington in 1975, in which an indigenous couple had been convicted of violating Washington hunting law on land that had been part of the North Half of the reservation. In that case, the court upheld the indigenous nation's hunting and fishing rights. This loss of land and the emphasis on farming were both devastating to the bands and tribes who are part of this community. Traditionally, these peoples had moved according to the season, so fishing for salmon and hunting, gathering things like roots and berries from the forests in a pattern that is sometimes described as the seasonal round, To be clear, there is not just one seasonal round. The specifics really vary, even within the same region and from one community to another. Farming was a totally different way of life from this. And again, a lot of the land that was part of the Colville Reservation wasn't really usable as farmland. And the loss of the North Half affected Morning Dove's family directly. People who had been allotted land on the North Half lost those allotments, and the Quintaskets family's land allotments had been there. We will get to Morning Dove's life after a sponsor break. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. 
That's right. Sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric. Cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. As we said before, Christine Quintasket, or Morning Dove, was born around 1888 and was the first of her parents' seven children. In her own story about her birth, her family was traveling with a group in what's now northern Idaho, and they didn't want to stop even as her mother Lucy went into labor. So Christine was born in a canoe as they crossed the Kootenai River and was wrapped in the shirt of one of the men who was paddling the canoe, and her family later attributed kind of a tomboyish streak to the fact that her first piece of clothing had been a man's shirt. She and her siblings grew up primarily near Kettle Falls, Washington, but also experienced some of the seasonal hunting and gathering that we talked about before the break. Christine first learned to read from a white orphan named Jimmy Ryan, who was adopted into the family. And she learned a lot of her cultural and traditional heritage from a woman named Tikalt. 
Ticalt had also been welcomed into the family after Christine had found her alone and disoriented, saying that she was going to walk until she died. Morning Dove described Ticalt as another grandmother. Christine's mother wanted her to have this indigenous education and to learn the traditions of her people. It was really important to her. And at the same time, Lucy Quintasket was devoutly Catholic. She thought her daughter, Christine, also needed to get a formal Western-style education and Catholic religious training to help her survive in a world that was increasingly dominated by white people and the U.S. government. So... In 1894, Christine was sent to the Sacred Heart School at Goodwin Catholic Mission in Ward, Washington, not far from Kettle Falls. Christine was already familiar with this mission before going to school there. It was where the family went to church when services weren't being held at the mission that was closer to their home. Even though the school really wasn't far away from where her family lived, she was a boarding student there. We have talked about schools like this in a few previous episodes of the show. Christian missionaries and other religious organizations were establishing schools to Christianize indigenous children as early as the 17th century. Congress passed the Civilization Fund Act in 1819, which provided government funding for these schools. Later, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, boarding schools were established to physically remove indigenous students from their families, languages, and cultures. Schools like Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania and Fort Shaw Indian School in Montana, both of which we have talked about in prior episodes. This grew to a whole system of institutions that included more than 400 federal boarding schools and more than 1,000 federal and non-federal institutions, including day schools, sanitariums, and orphanages. The boarding schools and day schools had the same basic purpose, to civilize, in quotation marks, indigenous children and force them to assimilate with white Christian culture. These schools were built near the end of centuries of active warfare between the United States and indigenous nations, but they were another way to try to eliminate the indigenous population. General Richard Henry Pratt, superintendent of Carlisle Indian Industrial School, summed it up as, quote, kill the Indian in him and save the man. At boarding schools and day schools, indigenous children weren't allowed to speak their own language or wear their own style of dress. They were forced to speak English and wear European-style clothing. There were people involved in these schools who were motivated by a charitable or humanitarian impulse. They thought that they were helping these children. But this whole mindset was racist and genocidal. And there were also people involved with running these schools who were not altruistic at all. Children faced widespread abuse and deprivation, and it is likely that thousands or even tens of thousands of children died at these schools. And this was also interconnected with federal policies meant to break up reservations, abolish tribal governments, and take over indigenous lands. It was all part of the attempt to eliminate the indigenous population of the United States. Yeah, when we say it's likely that thousands or tens of thousands of children died. There is no question about the fact that many, many children died. Like, the the possibility there is that the actual concrete number is not known. The U.S. made attendance at these schools compulsory in 1891, with the Commissioner of Indian Affairs empowered to enforce this law. Federal policy toward indigenous nations had been so destabilizing and violent that there were children who basically had nowhere else to go, 
There were also cases in which federal officials used children as hostages, especially the children of indigenous leaders, so placing children in schools far from their families to try to keep their parents compliant. At the same time, there were also families like Christine's who believed that going to one of these schools would help their children survive in a rapidly changing world. She described Father de Rouge, a Jesuit priest who told her mother that she should be sent to school, as somebody that the people of the Colville Reservation respected. When Christine Quintaskett started at Goodwin Catholic Mission School, she only spoke the interior Salish language of Insirchun, or Colville Okanagan, and she was punished for not speaking English. In his introduction to a reprinting of one of her books, editor Jay Miller points out an added layer to all of this. She was being punished for not speaking English by nuns whose first language was French. Eventually, she became too ill to finish the school year. Christine returned to school in 1897, and she described her experience that time as less traumatic than her first period at the school had been. When the school closed down in 1899, she went to the government boarding school on the Fort Spokane Agency. She stayed there for about a year, and then her mother died in 1902 when she was about 14. After her mother's death, she stayed home and she helped take care of her younger siblings until her father remarried in 1904 to a woman named Cecilia. At that point, Christine went to Fort Shaw Indian School in Montana, where she stayed for three years and worked as a teacher's aide. She was able to come and go from the school, at least to an extent, and visit a grandmother who lived nearby. We have a lot more about Fort Shaw Indian School in our two-parter on the Fort Shaw Indian School girls basketball team that came out in 2017, and it also has more detail about the boarding school system. In 1908, while in Montana, Christine saw the roundup of some of the last free-ranging bison in the United States. Prior to the arrival of Europeans, there had been an estimated 30 million bison, also called buffalo, in North America. Today, bison are associated primarily with the Great Plains and the West, but they lived on much of the continent. But by the early 19th century, their population was in sharp decline. The word overhunting does not go nearly far enough to describe why. This was an intentional slaughter carried out by both federal troops and private hunters meant to deprive indigenous peoples of a critical source of food, By the late 1880s, bison were nearly extinct in North America, aside from a few small herds that were mostly on private ranches. One free-ranging herd that remained had been developed largely by two men, Charles A. Allard and Michelle Pablo, who bought some orphaned bison calves from an indigenous hunter known as Sam Walking Coyote. Allard and Pablo each had an indigenous mother and had grazing rights on the Flathead Indian Reservation, which is home to the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes. By the time Allard died after a fall from a horse in 1896, the herd had grown to about 300, and by 1906, there were 700. By that point, Pablo was concerned about the safety of the herd because more and more homesteaders were moving into the area where they ranged, He initially tried to sell the herd to the U.S. government, which refused to buy them. So he sold them to Canada instead. He shipped about 500 bison to Alberta's Buffalo Park between 1908 and 1910. 
So the roundup that Christine saw was part of the process of gathering up the bison to send them to Canada. Seeing this had a huge impact on Christine Quintasket. Buffalo had played such a key part in the cultures and lifeways of indigenous peoples all over North America and had been intentionally hunted nearly to extinction as an act of genocide. Now she was seeing some of the few that remained on the range terrified and struggling as they were rounded up to be taken somewhere far away. This would also become one of the inspirations for her novel, which we will get to after a sponsor break. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Annabay. Annabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. Oh, <laughs> I especially love the dance challenges. So much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. All my friends love it. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Uh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. In 1909, Christine Quintasket started working on a novel. That same year, she married Hector McLeod, who she had met at Fort Shaw Indian School. This marriage seems to have been turbulent. McLeod could be violent and spent a lot of time around bootleggers, one of whom reportedly shot off one of his hands. 
They also struggled financially. We mentioned earlier that the land that had been allotted from the Colville Reservation often wasn't good for farming. So rather than farming their own land, a lot of indigenous people in the region wound up as wage laborers doing agricultural work for other people on other land that was more farmable. This included Christine and her husband, who worked as migrant agricultural laborers around the Pacific Northwest. There are accounts of her life that make this sound almost like the romanticized life of a struggling artist, that she would work in the fields and orchards during the day and write in a tent at night. But the reality was that this work was exhausting and it took most of the daylight hours. She mostly wrote when she wasn't doing agricultural work. By 1912, she was estranged from her husband and living in Portland, Oregon. She started using the name Morning Dove on her work, at that point spelled M-O-R-N-I-N-G, like the coming of the day. She wanted to write in English. Specifically, she wanted to write about her own culture and people for an English-speaking audience. The novel that she was working on was a Western romance, and it was one that she thought would humanize indigenous people for white readers. She was also collecting indigenous stories, But since she grew up speaking a Salish language and her English classes had been kind of spread across eight years at three different boarding schools, she still struggled with various aspects of English. So from 1913 to 1915, she moved to Calgary, Alberta to attend Calgary College Business School. She studied things like typing, shorthand, and bookkeeping while also working on her English. In 1915, she attended the Frontier Days Festival in Walla Walla, Washington, where she met Lucullus Virgil McWhorter. McWhorter had been born in Virginia in 1860 and had become a rancher after moving west in 1903. He had also become an advocate for the rights of indigenous people and communities and had been adopted into the Yakima Nation after helping them fight for their land and water rights. He had been given indigenous names that translated to Old Wolf and Bigfoot. A mutual friend named J.W. Langdon later encouraged Morning Dove to reach out to McWhorter for some help with her writing. Morning Dove had almost finished a draft of the novel that would eventually be published under the name Kogiwia. But at first, she and McWhorter talked about the notes that she had collected on 22 indigenous stories and legends. They had both seen the effects of the federal government's destructive policies on indigenous communities, and they both thought that if these stories were not intentionally preserved in writing, they would be lost. McWhorter thought that Morning Dove was an ideal person to do this, so he encouraged her, maybe even pressured her, to record the knowledge and culture of her people. He started out acting essentially as her editor and literary agent, but over time, they developed a working relationship and a friendship that lasted for the rest of Morning Dove's life. This relationship was complex. McWhorter was more than 20 years older than Morning Dove, and he was a man and he was white, so there were some clear power disparities involved. He made additions and changes to her novel that we're going to talk about more in part two, sometimes without talking to her about those changes. And once the two of them did start to talk about working on a novel, he started arranging interviews and a speaking tour for her. 
Morning Dove would eventually become known for her speaking, but initially she found this prospect terrifying. She was really worried about her ability to speak English well in front of an audience and what their response to her would be. She eventually got sick, and the tour was indefinitely postponed. By 1916, they were ready to find a publisher, and Morning Dove wrote a letter to their mutual friend J.P. McLean about the finished draft of the book, saying, quote, We both worked hard on it, and we sometimes almost went on the warpath, but we always patched up a piece and continued friends. He helped me with Kogiwea, but next time I am going to let him make the plot, and I will help him. In 1916, she did an interview with a Spokane newspaper about what McWhorter thought was her soon-to-be-published novel. This ran in the Spokesman Review on April 9th, and it was reprinted two days later, and it was picked up by other newspapers all over the country, including the Washington Post. This article covered about the top third of a page, and it featured a full-length picture of her in indigenous dress and a smaller one with, quote, her hair done up on her head and wearing garments of her white sisters. This article illustrates so much about Morning Dove and about the presumably white writer's attitudes about her and about indigenous people. It describes her as, quote, as Indian wealth goes, wealthy because she had leased some land she had been allotted to white farmers. She definitely was not wealthy in any way that involved money, though. As we said earlier, she was often working as an agricultural laborer to try to make ends meet. The writer's description of her is both flattering and infantilizing. Like, she's described as a, quote, stout-hearted Indian girl. But if she was born in 1888, she would have been 28 when this article came out. It also describes her as speaking faultless English, quote, as is usually the case with those to whom the tongue did not come naturally, but who have been diligent students. A later part of the article also describes the color of her skin and eyes, as well as her weight. Much of the article is ostensibly in Morning Dove's own words, beginning, quote, the white man does not know the Indian. He thinks the Indian cold, emotionless, pitiless. He is not. You think the Indian does not cry, does not love, does not kiss. Before you, I might not cry or show my emotion. I would never faint. But alone, if my heart was sad, I would weep and, like a white woman, find comfort and relief in tears. She was pushing back on the stereotype that indigenous people were stoic, and the idea of using her writing to dispel stereotypes about indigenous people would be an ongoing theme in her work and in this article. She also talked about how hard it was to spend so much time indoors at a typewriter. It just was not what she was used to. She also described missing her community's sweat lodge and went on to describe what that was, comparing it to a Turkish bath that a white person would pay to use. This was one of several times that she sort of tried to build a bridge between her own culture and that of white readers and to use ideas that she thought those readers would understand. In this article, Morning Dove also described civilization as bringing both good and bad to her people, with one example being an increase in divorce, which had previously been almost unheard of. And she described her tribe as continuing to change. For example, her stepmother would speak to her children in her language, and they would understand but answer in English. She also said that her stepmother had given land from her allotment to build a school, one that was now attended by her children, with all the rest of the pupils being white. 
This article ends with a passage about Morning Dove's experience at the Buffalo Roundup that we mentioned earlier, although this reporter places it as at five years previously, which would have been in 1911. She again returned to the idea of the depth of feeling of Indigenous people, contrary to this stereotype of their being stoic and emotionless. Quote, One magnificent fellow fought like a lion as they tried to crowd his wonderful shaggy head into a boxcar. In some way, he broke through the barriers on the opposite door of the car, fell down between the trains, and broke his neck. Cry? I saw some old, wrinkled, dried-up Indians sob like babies. It is wrong, this saying that Indians do not feel as deeply as whites. We do feel— And by and by, some of us are going to be able to make our feelings appreciated. And then will the true Indian character be revealed. As we said earlier, this article was meant as publicity for her book. The headline describes that book as soon to be published. But its publication was not soon at all. Eleven years would pass between this article and Kogawea coming into print. And we'll get to that next time. Yeah, I think usually when we do two-part episodes, I say at the beginning that it's going to be two parts. And I don't think I said this this time. So, surprise! Surprise, um, surprise it's a two-parter. Because, you know, in addition to her life being really fascinating to me, there's a, a lot of context we want to make sure we want to include with this one. Um, I have listener mail. Fantastic. Before we close out, uh, this is from Lauren. Lauren wrote after our unearthed installment recently, saying, Hello, Holly and Tracy. I've listened to the podcast since shortly after becoming a stay-at-home parent in 2012. I've wanted to write to you, and the perfect opportunity presented while listening to Unearthed in Autumn 2023 Part 1. When you mentioned the study about the atlatl as an equalizer and spear-throwing skill, my ears perked up. The Friday before the episode was released, my two kiddos, husband and I, had paid a visit to my alma mater, Kent State University, to visit the anthropology department. My son has an interest in tool making, and the director of the anthropology department just happens to study karate at the same dojo as my kids. I mentioned this interest to her, and she arranged a visit to the Experimental Anthropology Lab at KSU, Dr. Beber and her colleague, Dr. Aaron, showed us around the lab, did a stone tool-making demonstration, explained Dr. Beber's research, and we even got to use atlatls to throw spears. Needless to say, it was amazing. Dr. Beber is wonderful and does amazing research. I was starstruck having had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to hang out with two leading scientists in the experimental anthropology field. Then imagine my excitement as I heard Dr. Beber's research mentioned on the podcast. It was the coolest thing ever. I know they've been featured on History Channel shows, etc., but hearing you talk about research I had just personally had explained by the researcher was the most exciting thing ever. Thanks a million for putting so much time and effort into the podcast. It's truly wonderful and a highlight of my day, best Lauren. P.S. I've attached pics of my two standard collies. Matilda, Tilly, is the fluffy girl, and Clementine, Clem, is the smooth-coated girl. Let's look at these collies. They're so oh pretty. Goodness. Collies are so beautiful. Uh, when I was a child, a family that we knew had a miniature collie, and I wanted one. <laughs> so, even though from the moment I could say the word cat, I have been a cat person, for whatever reason, collie, I was like, yes, 
that, of course, was a slightly different collie than these adorable collies because that was a miniature collie. Uh, and these are standard collies. But thank you so much, Lauren, for this email and for these pictures. If you'd like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at HistoryPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. We are also all over social media at Myths in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Instagram. I said Twitter, and it's not called that anymore. I still call it Twitter. Yeah, I think a lot of people do. I refuse. Uh, If you'd like to subscribe to our show and you haven't yet, we're on the iHeartRadio app and wherever else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 